0: and the birth and early life of Moses into his 80th year. As we look to this chapter, let me just mention that great artists display discernible characteristics in their work. We understand this. Great leaders develop recognizable patterns of leadership. It could be a famous chef, a renowned musician, a popular author. Each one of them will develop unique characteristics that can be detected in their distinctive works. In fact, it is the delight of interpreters to discover these characteristics and to announce them to others. I would suppose there may well be somebody here among us today who could take us to an art museum and could show us the works of a renowned artist and show us patterns and characteristics in this artist's work. There might be some here today who would be able to take us to listen to to a great composer and to listen to various pieces by this great composer and say, listen there, there's the characteristic of this great composer. There might be some among us here who could tell us the characteristics of a particular basketball team in the NCAA tournament right now and how a certain coach brings out certain characteristics in those players. You know what I mean from the looks of it more of you know what I mean about the basketball part than the music and art part but might say something about us as a church I don't know but you know in a similar manner we understand this in a similar manner the Bible reveals discernible patterns in God's work and what is that work God is not an artist he's not a musician he's not a coach God is a sovereign Savior God is always laboring in all circumstances to save his people. We may know that in theory, we we may nod our heads to it, but I wonder if we truly believe that, that God is always working in all circumstances to save his people, From cover to cover, then, the Bible reveals characteristic patterns in God's saving activity through the ages. We need to learn to recognize these distinctive patterns in God's saving activity in order to understand the Bible's message. We also need to recognize these patterns of divine activity because they are operative in our own lives today. Those of us who know Christ as Savior, we can see the hand of God working in these similar patterns. He is always laboring in all circumstances to save his people. And God includes his people as active participants with him in this grand program of redemption. We see this reality displayed in God's deliverance of the Israelites from the captivity in Egypt. As we consider Exodus 2, we remember the backdrop. There is the promise of God to Abraham. I will give you a great offspring through whom will be born the great deliverer. And I will give you this land of Canaan. It will be your land. You will secure it. You will live here. A long ways down the road, but it is yours. I will keep my promise. Secondly, we have God's prophecy that goes along with that of a 400-year period of sojourn in Egypt, Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 16. And then we have, thirdly, as we come to Exodus 1, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, though he does not know it, has stood toe-to-toe and nose-to-nose in battle with God. He is opposing the promise of God To give to Israel this offspring, he is opposing, though he doesn't know it, the promise to return to the land of Israel. Pharaoh, in chapter 1 of Exodus, we noted last week, has subjected the people of Israel to slavery. He has sought to wear them down and beat them up by putting upon them this great trial. Then he moves to genocide. We will kill the Hebrew children adjusting his plan to kill the Hebrew boys and we read in verse 22 of the first chapter then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live we need to come to terms with this truth Pharaoh is fighting God he's fighting the promise of God This is a horrible time for God's people in slavery and now this genocide going on of their people. Although Pharaoh doesn't understand this, he has taken on a battle with God and this will not end well for him. But it is here that God comes then to the defense of his people and raises up a Savior for them. We read the narrative account here in Exodus chapter 2. And note first of all that God preserves Israel's savior. Now I'm going to use throughout this message today the word Savior with a small s a number of times. We need to understand that, not to say that this Savior gives saving grace to God's people, but this Savior with a small s is used by God to deliver His people. We see this this Savior preserved or the salvation of the Savior beginning in chapter 2 at verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. At this point in the narrative, their names are not important. It does not matter that this is their second son and third child. What matters is that a baby boy is born to two Israelites of the priestly clan of Levi. The slave woman's agonized groans of childbirth give way to the agonizing discovery that her child is a boy. There is a death sentence that hangs on his head. And when she saw, verse 2, that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, The idea here is not that his parents would have gladly dropped their son in the river if he was ugly. That's, that's not at all the point, obviously. But the point seems to be that the boy's unusually pleasing features indicate that something unusual is going on here. I don't know if it's fact or fiction, but I know that the historian of of later Israel, following the biblical times and Christ times, Josephus, writes that when Moses was carried around uh, by his servants, that people would stop in the road and gaze at his face. It was so beautiful. We don't know if that's fact or legend, but it is clearly true that Moses was a uniquely good-looking young man. He was goodly. I think it ties back to the good proclamation of God in Genesis chapter 1. God has created the world good, and he creates this boy good, and his parents recognize it. Now, Josephus also adds that Pharaoh, along with the decree that every baby boy should be drowned, also issued the decree as an attachment that any Hebrew family who hid a child would die. The whole family. So perhaps that's what's going on here as this boy is born to his parents. Will we risk the life of the entire family to give him life? In Hebrews 11 and verse 23, we find indication that the decision to spare Moses was an act of courage and it was an act of faith in God on the part of these parents. For three long months, imagine it, his mother did all that she could to conceal her son, that no one would know he was here. But for some reason, not described to us here, she came to the conviction that she could hide him no longer. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile his mother weaving together the long stems of papyrus plants into a little boat and waterproofing it with tar and pitch. A couple of points of context here that are helpful to us and I think interesting in light of what is taking place here. You can read in ancient writings many such stories as this and the critics will use this to say see the, the Bible is just borrowing uh, stories from its context. It's not borrowing stories of fiction from its context, it's borrowing the theme of its day. And it's describing what is a very common theme among ancient writers of child exposure. Child exposure, there was no uh, abortion at that time as we would understand it today, and so often children were left, just left to the elements, to die. And there were many stories of people who would come and pick up these infants and bring them to safety. And many times, some of these infants would come to a place of great prominence. The Bible is not borrowing fiction. The Bible is simply using the patterns of the day. This would be much more understandable to the people of that day, coupled with the second idea. And that is placing children in a river. Now we look at this as the most bizarre thing we've ever heard of, that this woman would make this little basket and put a boy in it and send it into the river. But this would be equivalent in our culture to leaving a baby on someone's doorstep. We know of that. That, that, that sort of strikes us and we understand the point of that. If you hear somebody left a baby on a doorstep or somebody left a baby at a hospital lobby or something, you know the point. The mother did not have the courage to take the life of the child for some reason something had gone wrong and they want to give their child a chance and so they expose their child they leave them on the doorstep that's what this woman is doing she's putting this child in a river which was somewhat common in that day with the thought that we will leave the child to the gods and trust that there will be some answer in all of this. Now this mother, of course, is not trusting the gods, but is trusting the God of heaven. And she is hoping that something will come to save her child. We do not catch this in our English translations, but we see here, if we stand back and look at this painting, at this portrait, we see the characteristic hand of our God. This word translated basket here is actually the word ark. And the word ark, of course, brings to mind what we have read earlier in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 of the ark that delivers Noah through the waters. In fact, this word for ark, translated basket here, is used nowhere else in the Bible. So there seems to be a literary connection that Moses is clearly drawing as as he pens this account, a connection between the ark that delivers Noah, the savior of the world at that time, and the ark that delivers Moses, the savior of his people at this time. This connection is there, and we see the hand of God behind it and these themes rising to the surface as God saved Noah through the flood waters in an ark, so God is saving this human deliverer through the waters of the Nile. And in both cases a deliverer is rescued by the very waters that drowned others. In verse four, we find his sister standing at a distance to see what would happen. It was a risky plan from the beginning. But acting in faith, the family apparently believes some person would have the power and compassion to to save the boy's life. They didn't set Miriam, assuming that's who this is, the only uh, sister of Moses that's mentioned, assuming this is his older sister Miriam. They certainly didn't send her to the banks of the Nile to watch the boy drown. She hopes, the family hopes, that she will have a report to give back that the child has been spared in some way by God. In verse 5 we read, Then, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. Dumb luck. Just happens to trip on this basket as she's bathing. We're not reading God's account if we think in those terms. This is clearly a providential meeting. The daughter of Pharaoh bathing here at this place. We have no idea if this family knows her itinerary, knows that she typically bathes in the river at this time of day. We have no idea how happenstance this might be, what what degree of happenstance might be here. But what we do know is that this woman stumbles upon this basket and that her emotions are in the hand of God. She can respond any way that she chooses, but, verse 6, we read, She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorrow for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. What will she do? This is one of the babies. She is obligated to drown in the Nile River. But rather than destroy the child, feelings of compassion well up in her heart. She's filled with pity for this beautiful child, and she boldly disregards her father's will. Perhaps this is part of the design of God, the beauty of this child. She looks at this child and just says, there is no way that I can drown him. And Moses' sister appears right on cue at verse 7 and asks Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Whether that's quick thinking or a pre-designed plan, we don't know. But again, God steers the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. What sweet providence for Moses' mother. Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, to, this is Moses' mother, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him what sweet providence paid to hold and nurse her own baby boy. And verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. We don't know the length of time here. Commentators guess that it was probably the period of weaning the child and the time where a child was to be prepared to be taught by others. At that point, Somewhere between the ages of two and four, perhaps, this child is turned over to Pharaoh. His mother had the time to teach him his identity, to teach him of God's holiness and a love for Israel. Yet how painful this must have been for her to place her son in the arms of another woman and to turn her back and to walk away. But it was her only choice and the only safe option that she had for Moses, and so she took her pay and she left her treasure with Pharaoh's daughter. And this woman took this little Hebrew boy into the palace of Pharaoh. She took a Hebrew boy into the palace of Pharaoh. I don't care how you're designing the story, that's not going to be an easy thing to happen. To get a Hebrew boy with full rights into the palace of Pharaoh would be quite difficult at this time. But God does it. And we see here the characteristic brushstrokes of God's saving artistry. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, in an unpredictable turn of events, God frees Joseph from slavery in Egypt and he places him in Pharaoh's court in order to save Israel. We have the very same thing taking place here with Moses. We have one who is in slavery placed in Pharaoh's court in order to save Israel. Both men were rejected by those who were called, they were called to rescue, we see later as well. And the parallels go on and on because the hand of God is behind it. He's drawing the picture, he's writing the story, and we keep seeing these patterns that connect. Going back to Genesis 50 and verse 20. We remember Joseph, who was taken from slavery and placed in Pharaoh's court. He said, you intended to harm me, to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And in like manner, the terrifying plan of Pharaoh to terminate the lives of all Hebrew boys becomes the very means that God uses to put Moses in Pharaoh's living room pharaoh could not understand this perhaps never did understand this but God uses the decree to place his Savior where he wants him and it reminds us that God is a sovereign Savior he is always laboring in all circumstances to save his people he does not promise to deliver us from pain in this think of Moses parents and perhaps Moses himself as he's left by his mother in the arms of this woman. God does not promise to deliver us from pain. He does not promise to make the way easy. But if we can learn to think big, if we can learn to see the big picture, we can know that God is working in every circumstance to save his people. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Pharaoh's daughter uses the active rather than the passive form of the verb to draw, which is quite ironic. Moses is not to be drawn out, but Moses is actually the Hebrew word for to draw out. An active sense. So like the name Joshua, which means Savior, so Moses' name prophesies his role as God's Savior of Israel. He is the one who will draw out of the water. He, the one who is drawn out of the water, will be the one who will draw out the people of Israel from slavery. Casuto says it well. This child was destined to be the deliverer of his people from the sea of their servitude. So, ironically, the boy that Pharaoh wanted to drown in the river now lives in his palace. The boy Pharaoh wanted to drown in the river escapes and one day with the sweep of his hand will drown Pharaoh's army. God is the author of the story from start to finish. And he's the author of every story from start to finish because God is in everything to work out his saving purposes Such scripting is characteristic of God's saving habits. We see here salvation historical themes that pop out all over through this text. As the plan of redemption unfolds, there would come a day when another Savior of God's people would be drowned in the river of death, only to rise again and thus deliver a death blow to death itself. As this man will deliver a death blow to Pharaoh's land, So God, through Christ, will deliver a death blow to death itself. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A Savior is at work here. A Savior is at work as God spins his story and plans his work. In all things, God is always working as the sovereign Savior to free his people. And isn't it the truth, can't we say with the Israelites of old, that one of the problems with all of this is God's so slow about the whole thing. He just takes so much time. 400 years, was this necessary? God promised the land to Abraham, in fact, six centuries earlier. As Americans, if you grew up here and you live here, we don't even have the concept of 600 years of history. It just completely bypasses us. You can go to Europe and they have the new church that was built in 1400, and the old one that was built around 1100 and didn't get knocked over. We have no concept of 600 years. But imagine a promise being made 600 years and kept alive by people of faith and Israel in Egypt for 400 years. Our temptation is to want things resolved quickly in our lives, but we have to admit that God's on a different timetable. He doesn't work as fast as we want Him to work. But what we can know is that we can trust the hand of God And this is one of the beauties of texts like this. And as we see these salvation historical themes, to stand back and in awe of God. And to know that he's always working his plan to perfection through the ages. And to know that we never need to worry about that. Not in our individual lives and not in the big scheme of things. We need to trust. God is always working in all circumstances to save his people. And that includes You, if you are a child of God. God preserves a Savior for Israel in these first 10 verses. As we come to verse 11, we see that He prepares Israel's Savior. He preserves Israel's Savior. And secondly, He prepares Israel's Savior. Drawn out of the water, put in the house of Pharaoh... Now God will prepare this one to lead Israel. And let me tell you again, the text does not unfold the way that we think it should. It's not the way we would tend to write stories. We have here, in fact, between verses 10 and 11, perhaps there's a gap in the text of your Bible, and that ought to be a real big gap. They should put in a few extra spaces there to let us know there's some time that passes here. According to Acts chapter 7 and verse 22 We find that Moses grows up and that he becomes a powerful man. He's trained in Pharaoh's palace as a member of the royal family. He would have been afforded unprecedented favor and privilege in the land. He would have received the best education in the world at that time at the University of Heliopolis, studying astronomy and chemistry and hieroglyphics. He also learned to battle. Again, if we trust the words of Josephus, the historian, Moses became a decorated military general who led a campaign delivering Egypt from Ethiopian invasion. If all of this holds together, there's some things we read between the lines a bit. But we do know he grows up in Pharaoh's home. He has the ultimate education. In fact, if you read these texts of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you read them in the Hebrew text, this man was a literary genius. So much misses us in English that we just can't see it. This man was a literary genius. These books are put together as a work of art that is unprecedented in this world. He was a man of high learning and education and power in Egypt. Wherever he would have gone in culture, people would have stopped and bowed down as soldiers ran before his litter and called out, bow the knee. Moses arrives. F.B. Meyer has a great line when he says, it seemed all the cream of Egypt was being poured into Moses' cup. All the cream of Egypt being poured into Moses' cup. He learned in these days to handle himself in Egyptian culture. He knew it thoroughly. At 40 years of age, Moses came then to a critical decision. We read of it earlier in hebrews chapter 11 moses believed that the time was right for him to abandon the privileges and the status of pharaoh's family and to embrace the people of israel greater than the luxuries of his life in egypt which were very immense greater than these luxuries was the smile of god and moses sought to secure that smile with great zeal There is a transformation that takes place here. The text of Scripture does not indicate, but this man had it all. He had all the riches. He had all the fame. He had all the privilege any man could ever have virtually in this world. But something takes place in the heart of Moses where he lays that all down and identifies with his people. In verse 11, we read that one day after Moses had grown up, he went out where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. We have a somewhat unfortunate translation here with the word grew up. Well, that's true, he grew up, but the idea is more that he became great. He became a man of influence and repute and importance in society. Moses seemed to have believed that he had gained this kind of status so that he would become the deliverer of Israel. And he begins his journey, so to speak, as he comes and sees this taskmaster, Striking this Hebrew, perhaps even preparing to kill the slave. Moses makes a crucial decision that had to be in his heart. This isn't something that just came upon him and overwhelmed him in a moment. There was a sense where he identified here with his people, and he stepped forward, and he laid down all of his reputation in life. Though he may not have understood it in the moment, he chooses to identify with his people. He's looking over his shoulder, certainly, He's cautious and anxious that no one see him. But he views this, apparently, as an act of war and then as, a, as an act of vindication for God. But it was a rash and dangerous act. It was out of character with the way God works his saving plan. God never saves people in this world at the point of a sword. Not the God of Scripture. And Moses' act was a rash foolish act. Yet God uses this rash deed as an integral part of his saving plan. If you don't hold the right view of providence, you're sunk right here. A violent sin on Moses' part is part of the scheme of God to build his leader, his Savior. God doesn't condone murder. We know that. It's against the character of God. But he uses this evil plan in Moses' mind, this evil act, to prepare his Savior. Verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? You hear his words, who died and left you, boss, right? Something like that. Who do you think you are telling me what to do? The reason he's saying this to this great Egyptian, there's only one reason. He's got something over him. He knows that he killed that Egyptian, and he knows that he can stand up to Moses. I'm sure that there was probably a good number of people in Israel who were quite jealous when it came to Moses. And this man doesn't have the time of day for him. Who do you think you are? We find here a theme that is referenced elsewhere in the New Testament that Moses is rejected by his people. The one who comes to be the deliverer of God is rejected by his people. Acts 7 and verse 35 indicates this, for instance. And here again we see the common hand of God, the common theme in God's saving game plan, if we could call it that. It is the rejection of a Savior. Think of it. Joseph is rejected by his brothers. He will become the Savior. Think of it. David is rejected by Saul and runs around as a fugitive. He will someday become the Savior. God is preparing us in this idea and in this theme to see the rejection of Jesus Christ, who becomes the Savior. Jesus' rejection as the Savior isn't a theme from nowhere. It's a theme that develops through Scripture as God prepares our heart to understand Saviors can be rejected. In fact, anybody who takes the gospel of Jesus Christ as a Savior into this world to proclaim the saving work of Jesus will find and experience rejection. There will be people who don't like you, there will be people who reject the message. Saviors are always rejected. There is no one in our assembly who will ever share the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully and fruitfully who will not endure rejection. It will happen. It happened to me this week. It will happen to you as you share the gospel faithfully. Somebody won't like it. There's a theme there. God prepares us. Saviors are rejected. And Moses is rejected. Now, the parallels between him and Jesus certainly end there. Jesus is not rejected because of his sin. But he is a Savior who is rejected. And Moses fears. Verse 14, then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. In fact, it had. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Moses did not flee north to Canaan because he knew Pharaoh paid Hittite troops to monitor the road up there and they would send traders back to Egypt and he didn't want to get mixed up with that. Do you see the pattern? Once again, the hand of God. Where is he going to take the nation? Same place he's taking Moses. Into the desert, not north, to the promised land. And Moses heads out to Midian, not north, but east, into the Sinai Peninsula, a desolate location along the eastern shores of the Gulf of Aqaba. It is not a happy place to be. But Moses runs for his life. He's fallen a long, long ways in status by this point in time when he leans his back, so to speak, maybe literally against that well in Midian. The man who enjoyed every luxury of the day, the man who grew up in the palace of a pharaoh, was now homeless. He had renounced everything to identify with God's people. It didn't all play out the way he wanted it to, He maybe didn't even understand all that he was doing but he had given up everything we find here again the pattern of god in the connection to philippians chapter 2 and our savior who gave up the glories of heaven for his people moses does the same in a limited sense as he sits there at this well verse 16 we read that now a priest of midian had seven daughters Now, that's not funny, but you almost have to laugh when you read that. If you've read through the book of Genesis and you make the connection between wells and daughters, you just have to laugh. Here it is again. Everybody gets married at a well. This priest has got seven daughters, and they come to draw water and fill the troughs of water to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. As was common in this culture, the unmarried women served as shepherds. And it seems here the text, of the Hebrew text is a bit different here than what we find in this translation, and it indicates that they had actually drew the water out and began to fill the troughs when they got run off. By these shepherds and apparently that's something that happened quite often but Moses steps in he is a military man and he's a man who's developing a reputation for protecting those who need protection the hopeless and the helpless and he steps in and he runs them off this one who had been waiting on who had been waited on his whole life now draws water for a few shepherd girls. It is definitely an indication of his humility, of, as the Bible calls it, his meekness. He draws water for them to finish up whatever hadn't been drawn or what had been spilled, and he rescues them and cares for them and serves them, and they leave. But remember, this is a well, and there's an unmarried man and an unmarried woman here And so the text continues at verse 18. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, apparently, he was used to them coming back late with these nasty shepherds. And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. There's an amazing phrase there in that verse. An Egyptian. Rescued us. You see it? An Egyptian. We don't know who he is, just some Egyptian guy that showed up here and is amazing. The guy that rescues quite a quite a warrior. They have no clue who he is. This man grew up forty years of his life, or a few less, subtracting what he grew up with his own mother, but basically 40 years of his life growing up in Pharaoh's palace. And here he is, just an Egyptian. They have no idea of his fame or importance. It is the humbling of Moses, the absolute humbling. Verse 20, And where is he? asked their father to these daughters. Why did you leave him, invite him, and have to have something to eat? They apparently return to the well and find the man and bring him home. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. That was not right after lunch or anything like that, but he went to live with them and to stay with them for a while. and got to know them, and this woman is given to him as his wife. And we witness again here, I've mentioned it before, but let's stop again just for a moment and see the characteristic brushstrokes of God's saving artistry. Do you see it? A foreign wife found at a well for the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob. In fact, as you go back to Genesis chapter 24, you remember there that lengthy section. It's pages in my Bible. It's got big print, but it's pages in Genesis 24. This painstaking process of going to this other land and finding a wife for Isaac And there's so much repetition in that text. Why is that there? It's trying to get our attention and say, here is the providential hand of God working to save his people. Pay attention to it. This is no happenstance. This is no chance meeting. This is no boring marriage discussion. This is a work of God to bring a wife to Isaac. Now listen to that. Pay attention to it, Genesis 24. And then pay attention to it again because it happens again with Jacob. He gets two wives at the well, much to his chagrin. But he too is married to a foreign woman at a well. It is not accidental, it is not coincidental that Moses meets his wife, a foreign woman, at a well. All three are in the line of promise. All three will father a son by these women who falls in the line of promise of the great coming deliverer? God's saving plan is working. And married to Zipporah, Moses fathers a son and names him Gershom, verse 22, saying, I have become an alien. In a foreign land, there's some debate as to what the word Gershom means. It's related to the word alien in some way. This is really a humbling experience for Moses, and the naming of his son indicates that he is an alien from a nation of slaves. He is an absolute nobody. He once led armies and moved freely in the most powerful circles of influence, and now he leads sheep in anonymity. I am an alien. I'm a sojourner among sojourners. But here's the key. What's Moses doing here in the desert? He's learning the terrain. He's learning how to lead flocks through this terrain in this desert. He's learning where the wadis are, the dry riverbeds. He's learning where the vegetation is. He's learning where the water is from time to time. He's learning how to handle the snakes. He's learning the terrain. He's learning his geography. He's learning to shepherd sheep. It's no mistake that Psalm 77 refers to this one as the shepherd of Israel. He's going to take the nation right through the same terrain. He needed to know how to operate in Pharaoh's court 40 years. And he needed to know how to handle the desert 40 more years. God is preparing his Savior. And I imagine there were times when Moses was saying, what on earth is God doing? It seems so clear to me. Everything seemed to be holding together. It makes perfect sense. He delivers me from the river. He puts me right in Pharaoh's house. I'm the one to deliver the people of Israel. But now what? But what we learn as we look back and see the whole scope of Moses' life is that God is always working in all circumstances to save his people. God does not simply hand out the gift of salvation at the moment a person trusts Christ as Savior. There are some theologies, there are some readings of scripture that take salvation that way. That God deals with salvation when you pray a prayer and he hands you salvation and then then we move on to other things. No, God is always working at all times in all circumstances in a grand overarching plan. He is working to save his people from sin and Satan and death. He's doing that in your life and mine. Every event in human history locks into this big picture in one way or another, including our individual lives and histories. And so we're called here to think, to contemplate, that enduring patience with God is necessary. We need to endure the timing and the plan of God. The God of the Bible at times works miraculously, but the God of the Bible doesn't usually work with jackhammers. He usually works quite slowly and imperceptibly. His saving plan is big, and he moves slower than we do because he has all the time in the world he's writing the story perfectly and it gets written over a lot longer period of time than we live we have Israel for 400 years in Egypt we have Moses for 40 years in the desert and in our human way of thinking we say why so long And the temptation for us in our individual lives when we look at the long stretches of God's plan is to do what Moses did, to do what Abraham did with Hagar, and to take things in our own hands, to try to help God out and get things jump-started. Now, we need to understand on the other side is apathy and lethargy and inertia. That's not part of the life of faith either. However, we have a great problem on this side of the equation to try to jumpstart God, to try to put our hands onto things and get Him to work faster than He's willing to work. And don't you find it frustrating? He just doesn't work as quickly as we want Him to work. It's one way among many that He reminds us, I'm God, you're not. Be patient, be still. And know that I am God. But remember this, I will never quit working for my people. Every promise of God will be fulfilled in his time and way. What we need is dependence on his timing. And that means enduring patience through personal trials. Not only enduring through the timing of his plan, but enduring through the personal trials that that plan involves. Let me tell you moses was playing the really hard game of waiting the long waiting game and it's particularly hard when what you want is something that god wants you're not waiting for something evil to take place you're not waiting to fulfill your own lusts you're waiting for something that god himself wants why does it take so long and why do the trials of my life hurt so badly What we can remember is that God is always laboring in all circumstances to save His people. And God includes His people as active participants with Him in this grand program of redemption. That means two things. Number one, that we will suffer as He hones us and prepares us to be Saviors, small s. And it means also that that's His plan. He's making us Saviors, He's going to include us in the plan. saviors are not born. They're made through trial and they're made through heartache. And our orientation so often is I'd really just rather everything worked out the way I want it to work out but God has bigger purposes for His people. He wants to include you. If you know Christ as your Savior, you're His child, God wants to include you in His saving plans. There are people that He wants you to lead to Christ, the Savior. There are people that He wants you to encourage in the ways of God. And to do that, we've got to suffer. How weak the message Of a suffering Savior through the words of someone who's never suffered we need to be honed we need to be hurt we need to develop patience and waiting upon God and he does this through us because he's involving us in his saving plan Abraham had to wait a long time for the birth of his son Jacob had to wait a long time to get away from his father in law and come back to the promised land. And Joseph had to wait a long time in prison. Peter had to wait an excruciatingly long time, as short as it was in comparison, an excruciatingly long time between the time Jesus died. And the time he came back and said, Peter, do you love me? Paul had to wait a long time in Tarsus. Escaping from those that wanted to kill him, he got set outside of the primary plan of God and sat in Tarsus for a number of years, around 10 years before he was invited to Antioch by Barnabas and his ministry began. And Jesus, remember the pain in his heart at 12 years of age when he went back to Nazareth and left the temple. Until he was a man in his 30s, between 30 and 33 years of age, Jesus worked with wood, and he waited. There are times that God says it's time to wait. It's time to be patient. It's time for your faith to be tested. It's time to suffer rejection. We need to hold on. We need to endure, and we need to see the hand of a saving God in all circumstances of life. And in light of the story of this great Savior, Moses, we have the theme laid out of the great Savior, Jesus Christ. But we have not concentrated much on that point. I say to you today that Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty of sin, death. He walked into the river of death, and he endured it, and he paid the penalty. Your sin was placed upon him and having paid the penalty of sin he rose from the dead Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death by dying he was working out his purposes and he continues to work them out if you have not come to a place of saving confidence of trust In the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of your sin, I call you to seek him today, to come to this gospel message of Jesus crucified and risen, and to see in it the salvation from sin. He did defeat death, he is the ultimate Savior to which Moses points. For those of us who know him, may we proclaim the salvation in Jesus Christ. We don't run around telling people about Moses being delivered from the waters of the Nile. A great account. It's very much a part of God's saving plan, but we run with the message of a Jesus who entered death and beat it. We need to take that message. And there will be those who reject it and don't want to hear it, but we need to proclaim it widely and freely and faithfully. That this rescuer, Jesus Christ, would work through us as small saviors, small s, to win. The lost to salvation by his mercy by his grace by his enabling may we run with that and never forget that God is always working in all circumstances to save his people we don't always get it we can't always seem to endure it we don't know how he works but you can guarantee this he is always working in all circumstances To save his people ultimately from the very presence of sin let's rejoice as we come and thank him in prayer our father we give thanks we praise you we seek your mercy and we fall before you and acknowledge father how impatient how lackluster how unprepared we are to be saviors, to be rescuers of others from sin. God, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of sin and rose from the dead. We thank you for his redemptive work and pray that we would proclaim it widely and freely and be willing to do the work of proclaiming this truth of Christ crucified and risen to a needy world. Father, Father, If there's one among us who knows not Christ as Savior, I pray that you'd open their eyes and show them the redemption in Christ. We do need saving. And I pray that anyone who's lost will sense that now and that you will stir their hearts and draw them close to you. I pray, Father, for those of us who know you, that we would rejoice in Jesus Christ our Savior and rest in his saving grace this day. I don't know how this text or these truths apply to every individual, but they do. And I pray, God, that you would, by your Spirit, teach us what you are saying to your church today. That we would lift up high the name of Jesus Christ and his saving purposes in this world. Through him we pray. Amen.